Well, um, when I was phoned by Mr. Maxwell about what I was going to talk about, he, uh, and then I said, yeah, I would be willing to do that. So then I went and I talked to some of my fellow pastors and told them I was going to be talking on the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. They laughed. <laughs> this kind of sardonic laugh, like, um, uh, good luck. <laughs> these aren't um, books that normally, when you think about how much is involved in these books, they don't often um, think to be lumped together. But as I was studying it, there were some things that, that brought them all together in my mind, and I hope that they'll be clear to you this morning. When do historians, artists, philosophers, and clergymen all agree on the same thing? I would say very rarely. Because historians tend to report just the facts. No interpretation, no uh, commentary, just, just the facts. And then the artists, well, they like to express how they feel. And the, the nuances of, of their experience. They interpret the world around them through their interpretation of their emotions. Philosophers try to find a root cause. To be able to, to know why something happened. It's cause and effect. And the clergy, well, that's me. We try to help people to find relief and, and, and answers to the struggles that they face in their life. When it comes, though, then to biblical revelation, we seem to find that there's something that they can all agree upon. Even though they come from different perspectives, there is something that they can agree upon. The book of Job is a historical account of a man who struggled with his personal hardships. The Psalms are a collection of poetry and song lyrics that express the feelings of those who have experienced issues in life. Proverbs is a collection of Solomon's musing as to how life works. And Ecclesiastes is a record of him wrestling with the meaning of life's struggles. And clergy, well, that's me. I have to somehow try to make sense of all this for the people who look to me for spiritual direction. So what do they all agree upon? There are two basic Life principles or paradigms that can't come through in all these books all together. And the reason why they become the topic of discussion for, for all of these parties is because these two life principles are found not just here, but throughout the whole Bible. But in these books, there seems to be, a, it comes out in a very practical way in its comparison as we'll look at today. So because they're part of this divine inspiration of the Bible, then it follows that God intends for us to see them here. These are for us. These are to help us to deal with the kinds of issues that we face in our life. So hopefully I've piqued your curiosity. And as we look at these principles, that they'll be able to help you to understand maybe even some things that you've already wrestled with in your life. So I'm just going to give you the principles in a very simplistic way, and then we'll, un, I'll, we'll look at them in a little bit. Principle number one 
If you live according to God's directives, you will experience God's blessing and protection from hardship. Principle number two, sometimes bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Now, these seem to be contradictory principles because if God is in control and he's sovereign, how does he let bad things happen to good people? How can both principles be active in our lives at the same time? What's the heck going on? Like, like it seems as though these things just don't go together. And it makes God look like a paradox. Let me explain a little bit. We're first introduced to these principles in the book of Job. And it's an account of a, this cosmic contest between God and Satan. And we see the principles being played out, but in a strictly narrative historical sense. Um, just the facts, no interpretation, just a record of what's going on. And though we have this inside look of seeing what transpires in the courts of heaven between God and Satan... The majority of the account is a record of this conversation that goes on between Job and his friends and their different understandings of why things happen the way they do. It amounts to this debate between two, these two conflicting principles. The friends of Job, they believe that a person who lives a life of obedience to God's directives, that person will be exempt from hardship because God will bless them and protect them from life's difficulties. And so the reverse would also be true according to them, that a person who suffers hardship must then be a person who has violated God's directives. So where did they get that idea? Well, it's anchored in the law, the, the Pentateuch for one. Though historically Job was probably the oldest book in the Bible and was written even before the book of Genesis, in our English text, it comes right before the Psalms and it is here that we find its kind of context with the other books. Because of its placement here, Job seems to be responding to the things that have preceded it in the Bible. God tells his people that if they follow the laws that he gives them, all will go well for them. If they do not, they'll have to struggle with God's discipline. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says this, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, and a curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I have commanded you today by following other gods which you have not known. That is, the, that is reiterated then as we go through the, the scriptures, first of all, in the judges and in the kings. When the kings disobeyed God, they were blessed and protected. When they chose to violate God's laws, that protection was lifted. And they experienced the full brunt of life's sufferings as discipline from God. Job, on the other hand, we are told, is a person of high moral character. And integrity. The very reason why God shows him off to Satan in the first place. So when bad things began to happen to him, the conclusion of his friends is that he must have violated God's laws in some way. 
God promised to protect those who obey him so that he was so that he was experiencing all these problems just goes to prove, as far as they're concerned, that he must have disobeyed God somehow. And this is where principle two comes into play. Job knows that he has lived with integrity and that he has not knowingly violated God's laws, yet he's experiencing these horrible hardships, the elimination of his wealth and possessions, the death of his children, the removal of his health. And he wonders where God is in his situation because he knows that he doesn't deserve things like this. So this begins this discussion between these two principles, the friends taking the side of principle one and Job taking the side of principle two. And here's a quote from either side. First of all, the first um, friend to speak is Eliphaz in chapter four. And this is what he says. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. All the breath of God, they, at the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. And then Job responds. This is what his response to Eliphaz. Look at me. Would I lie to your face? Stop assuming my guilt, for I have done no wrong. Do you think I am lying? Don't I know the difference between right and wrong? Back and forth. Back and forth the arguments go through the whole book. Job defending his moral character and his friends accusing him of wrongdoing. And the the book ends with no real answer except that God intervenes and he speaks. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Next, when we get to the book of Psalms, the the artists and the musicians, the poets, wrestle with the same principles. They know the promises that God had given in the Pentateuch. They know that um, honoring God leads to blessings, so they voice their desire to live a life that pleases God. For example, the very first Psalm goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yet, the psalmists wrestle also with life circumstances that don't seem to fit with this principle. There are those who don't follow God, yet to seem have a life of ease. Bad things happen even to those who seek to live a life honoring to God. It doesn't make sense. How can that be true when God said that he was going to reward the faithful? Psalmist in 74 says this, How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. 
Remember how the enemy has mocked you. O Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. But like typical artists, the psalmists don't really have a good answer for this cosmic discrepancy that happens. They just voice their confusion and their frustration and the unanswered questions that they have to live with. When it comes to the laments, the heart of of those who are pouring out their grief to God in in poetic verse, it's often sparked exactly by their wrestling with this issue, this apparent inconsistency and the injustices of these principles. There is no easy answer for why God allows this to continue. And so the psalmists continue to lament. And then there's the philosopher, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Surely he will be able to make sense of all this confusion. So in Proverbs, he puts all his eggs into the one basket and becomes a proponent of principle number one. Here's Proverbs chapter 2. So follow the steps of the good and stay on the path of the righteous. For only the godly will live in the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be removed from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted. So the whole book seems to be built upon this premise that the righteous will follow God and be rewarded with divine blessing while the wicked who violate God's directives will pay the consequences. And since Proverbs is espousing accepted truth, that's how the principle by which the whole book seems to present itself. Yet, Ecclesiastes, the same author, seems to see things from a totally different perspective, not nearly so cut and dried. He wrestles with why some things go one way and at others they go another way. There seems to be no rhyme or reason for why there is this change. Sometimes it ends up that those who deserve good outcomes get one. But for others, even those who live a good life, they wrestle with the hardships and injustices. Here's from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. And then it's left to me, clergymen, to try to make heads or tails of all this. Try to explain to people in my congregation who are wrestling with these things, people who honor God and and believe that, that it should count for something, and yet they wrestle with all kinds of personal issues. I've experienced both sides of these principles myself. I've experienced God's blessing because I've been faithful to his calling and followed him and obeyed his commands. But then again, there have been some times that, like Job, I have been under the gun 
There have been things that have happened in my life, not because of my wrongdoing, but because I am just uh, the recipient of personal attacks. One of the churches where I pastored is kind of a microcosm of even this, these principles at, at odds with each other. Our, li- our church was in a, a state of revival. There were people who were coming to, to faith. There were people who were on the, on the edges of our congregation who would have been kind of, I don't know, lackadaisical in their faith, and, and they weren't following God very uh, astutely and, and with a lot of, of, of enthusiasm, but they were being drawn in, and people were getting saved. People were coming to to be more responsible in their, their walk with Christ. It was just, there was just a really neat time. But exactly at that time, there were those in the congregation who saw that things were changing too much. They didn't like the changes that were going on. And so what did they do? They attacked the point person. And they attacked me. And there were some times when that attack seemed so difficult that I was fearful that the safety, my own personal safety, the safety of our family. I, I wouldn't have been surprised at that time if our house would have been arsoned at, at times. That's how, how aggressive the attacks seem to be at times. And so at a time like that, I said, God, I've, I've done all this for you. What? And this is my reward? I was supposed, I thought I was supposed to It was supposed to be worth it to follow you. And this is the thanks that I get. So these two principles seem to be um, unreconcilable in my mind to the point of where I actually had a mental breakdown and ongoing PTSD. Now all these biblical voices, um, they are talking about the same tension But all of them as well have found an answer to it. There is, they try to find a way to make sense of this this contradiction. And they found it. The historian, the artist, the philosopher, and even me, the clergy. There is an answer to help reconcile the two of these together. Each one of these voices have come to the same conclusion regarding the only posture that one can have in finding their way through this apparent contradiction. There is an enduring principle that supersedes the two others. And what principle is that? It is the principle that we need to trust God no matter what, even when life doesn't make sense. Each of these speakers comes to the same conclusion that when life doesn't make sense, There is nowhere else to turn to except to God. His ways are higher than ours. His understanding is beyond our comprehension. There are things he knows and understands that even if he tried to explain it to us, we wouldn't be able to grab hold of it. So there are some things that we will just have to trust to him and let God be God and that we recognize that we are not. Now that's not a cop-out. That is embracing a biblical worldview that sees him as creator, we are the created, and it's taking our place in that order of life and being content to live in that that state. It's throwing oneself on the knowledge that God is good. No matter what the circumstances may look like from our perspective, 
It's relying on the revelation of God's character to the point that one may not have all the answers to their specific situations, but what one knows about God is all that one needs to know to have peace. For example, though Job never gets an insight into knowing what's been going on in the heavens, yet he's exp- he turns in his heart to a unresol- un- un- um, or a, a, a trust in God that puts everything on the, on the table. Um, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job realizes that even if there are no answers for what's going on with his hardships, and if in the end, even his ill health will, will, will end in his own physical death, yet he will still trust God. That's the only constant in a world that's falling apart. Job 19. I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I will not, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. When God does eventually speak at the end of the book, his perspective is one that silences both sides of these, this argument. Job 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. The only posture that makes sense to both sides is to defer to God and let him be the one who's in control, that he is the one who created our world, that he's in charge, and we answer to him and not the other way around. He doesn't have to justify his actions to us. We need only to trust him. When the psalmists pour out their complaints and laments to God and they're questioning where is God and what's he up to, in each case, you can look at this, I think it's without, without any exception, when there are laments, the psalm that they're lamenting in always ends in a declaration of trust in God. This is Psalm 71. For my enemies speak against me, Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and see him, seize him, for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, O my God, and help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Even King Solomon, with all his philosophy and searching to find answers to life mysteries in reason, when it is all said and done, he comes to the same conclusion that the only sure solution to these apparent contradictions is to rely on the loving sovereignty of God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. The last and final word is this. Fear God. Do what he tells you, and that is it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do out in the open and judge it according to its hidden intent. 
whether it is good or evil. And that's where this preacher had to come to eventually as well. You know, I had to go to a counselor to be able to get a good perspective on these things. To weed through the, this conclusion, it just, the, the two principles just seemed to clash in my mind, and there didn't seem to be any resolution to it. But the wise counselor that I went to, he reminded me that principle number one, that God would bless those who obey him, is the principle on which the world would have originally been created. God had that in mind when he created our world. But when Adam and Eve violated that principle, sin entered the world, and then principle two was born. That bad things can happen to good people, and good things can happen to bad people. Our world is not the way that God had originally designed it to be. There is no such thing as good always prevailing. There, um, because our world is a fallen world now, it's marred by the scourge of sin. So we live in this imperfect environment, and it will continue to be so until Jesus makes a new heaven and a new earth. Until then, we live in this ongoing tension. And because of that, we live in a world where the two principles coexist. We get glimpses of both sometimes. Sometimes we see principle at one at work, and we see what it means to reap the benefits of a life well-lived in obedience to God. And at others, we bear the injustices of how messed up our world is when even good people are taken advantage of or they get sick. Either, uh, or, bad, sorry, or bad people get ahead and seem to live a life of ease and prosperity. But the best posture in either case, really the only feasible option to deal with this tension is to entrust it all into God's loving and sovereign care. Like Job, even though I may never get the whole picture and may never really understand what's going on, I can trust God, he is trustworthy even if I don't know all that I wish I knew. It's kind of like when you have a good friend and they do something that appears at first to be uncharacteristic of them and their personality. You don't know why they did what they did. It just doesn't seem to be like them. And if you're a good friend and you have a history with them, you're likely already have this uh, built this relationship with them of trust. So when they act in that uncharacteristic way, you don't immediately jump to the conclusion that they have suddenly turned bad. You assume that you don't have all the information. And if you did have all the information, it would then make sense. The same goes with our relationship with God. From what we read in the Bible, and on top of that, the history that we as individuals have with him, that we know that God is trustworthy. So when life doesn't make sense, bad things happen to us, even though we may have been faithful to God and following his directives, we shouldn't immediately jump on the conclusion that God is untrustworthy. It seems to be reiterated in the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus was telling a series of parables explaining the kingdom of God, and he said in Matthew 13, Jesus told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared and the owner, the owner's, sorry, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. Servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them as well. Jesus tells us that with these two opposing paradigms affecting our lives at the same time, they're often influencing our lives at the same time. And we have to be willing to trust it into God's hand to allow him to bring about order and justice in his time. In the meantime, we have to be willing to live with that tension and in that tension to trust God with what he has in store for us. The injustices are something that God will bring about a resolution to and correct in his time. So, don't throw out principle number one only because it's not a foolproof equation for success, happiness, and to be free of troubles. It's still a principle that's at work in our world. So as Solomon says in Proverbs, honor God and he will honor you. That principle still stands and it still works. But also, when despite your best intentions, failure, hardship, disappointments, ill health, track you down and principle number two bites you, don't be surprised. You don't, don't use it as an excuse to doubt God and attack his character. We don't know it all. He knows what's really going on. Trust him with it all. He is still worthy of our trust. Allow him to carry you through it. And also, like Solomon says, allow God to sort it out in his good time. Let's pray. Lord, you, you recognize these truths are ones that we find difficult sometimes coming to terms with. But I pray, Lord, that as we get this bigger perspective on life, that we will be able to see you at work in our lives, honoring us when we do things your way, reaping a harvest when we do things the way you would want us to do them, and at times, yep, there are times when this world is just not the way we had hoped it would be. And we um, get bit by this principle that bad things happen to good people sometimes. But Lord, we pray that you would help us in spite of that to trust you. In, even when things don't make sense. Even when we don't have the answers. Because you're trustworthy. You're bigger than the, than the, the troubles that we face. And there will come a day when we will be able to understand and be able to know things from your perspective. So we just commit our lives to you and help us to trust you in a deeper way, maybe even just because we, we heard this this morning and we are able to apply these principles to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.